0: Welcome to Working Gratitude, real people, real gratitude at work, with your host, Darren Hollingsworth, Chief Gratitude and Accountability Officer at Odonata Coaching and Consulting.
1: Welcome to Working Gratitude. I'm your host, collaborator, and grateful accountability partner, Darren Hollingsworth. My guest today is Mike Robbins, a highly sought-after speaker, thought leader, and author of five books that have inspired and informed much of my life and work. His first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, The Power of Appreciation, was among my first inquiries into gratitude and appreciation over 10 years ago. His last book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and his podcast, which carries the name of his soon to be released new book, We Are All in This Together, could not be more timely. We are recording this on March 30th, and I have to tell you my heart is full and at times troubled as we approach a time of unprecedented crisis in the world, health, in the economy, in our professional lives, in our personal and family relationships, and thankfully a time when there is a heightened awareness that in fact we are all in this together. Our intention is to release this uh, at a time that coincides with Mike's book, Publishing, so that you have another tool in your toolkit and access to more of the information around the conversation of connectedness via authenticity and appreciation and gratefulness and kindness and compassion. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today, and I'm just so glad that you're here.
2: Well, Darren, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great work that you do. and for. The connections over the years on LinkedIn and social media and by email, I very much uh, am grateful to get to connect with you and everybody listening, especially at this uh, this interesting and intense and challenging time for all of us.
1: you know my thoughts have been with you and and your family because i 've followed your posts on LinkedIn and Facebook and instagram and and the podcast. Yeah. And I have tons of friends in San Francisco in the Bay Area. In fact, neighbors of yours in, there in Novato right. um, that used to dog sit for me. <laughs> um, and um, really close to the Greek Orthodox Church there. Do you ever go to that Greek food festival there?
2: We do, actually. It's
1: great. It's great. <laughs> I, I love that place. So um, I know you're in the Bay Area. You're, you're with your wife, your girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're used to traveling and being in large groups. Yeah. Uh, for our listeners how are you and your family
0: doing
2: well i appreciate you asking you know we're i mean we're hanging in there as you said you know we're recording this on march 30th so we're about 16 17 days into being at home um and you know it's been an adjustment for like for all of us i'm sure everybody listening has their own story of adjustment and challenge and our girls we were supposed to go on spring break um, on the 13th. And we canceled our trip the night before and didn't go to New York and Orlando. And that was really sad. And of course, in hindsight, it was a, by far the the a very, very good decision. We were actually just talking about that this morning. New um, York,
1: for sure. Yeah,
2: we were literally heading to Manhattan on, on March 13th. And then we're going to head down to Orlando to go to Disney. And um, you know, it's just been I mean, it, the whole thing's been surreal. And um, on the one hand, I've been saying this recently, I'm feeling more settled in the whole experience of like surrendered to this is what life looks like right now. I'm trying to just stay in the moment and not figure out when's this ending and what's happening. Cause that's kind of crazy making. And at the same time, I'm feeling m- more unsettled as the news gets worse and the stories get scarier and sadder and more dire. Um, and the reality of what's happening sets in. So, you know, we're, we're doing okay. And, you know, we've got a 14 year old and 11 year old here at home who are trying to adjust and figure out how to do online school and stay connected with their friends when they can't see them and all of those things. And, you know, and I'm also trying to adjust my business, right? A new book coming out, which was supposed to come out the first week in May, which is now probably going to come out like next week. And we're still waiting to figure that out. It's all up in the air and all the events that I was supposed to speak at for, uh, the next few weeks and few months have been either postponed or canceled. So, you know,
1: it's, it's a time to be resilient, right. And a time to find resources. And, you know, I debated about this, um, in reaching out to you and your team about, do we go forward with this right now? And then you've had this, you know, things are changing by the hour. So, Um, we are, I, I I mentioned in our listeners, know, I do a lot of work with, in the nonprofit community as a consultant and collaborator there. And, um, in my region in in West Tennessee, North Mississippi, Eastern Arkansas, not only do we have nonprofits responding to the COVID-19 crisis, unemployment, food, food distribution. We just had a horrible category three tornado. in right. Jonesboro, Arkansas on Saturday evening that thankfully loss of life was minimized, but displacement Mm -hmm. of people and of workers adds another to that community, another um, category of, of people in unrest. And that, that makes it hard. So as I was thinking about our talk today, you know, I want to talk about, the amazing threads of continuity that you have in your work, um, because they've inspired me, as I mm. said. And I think that uh, as our listeners get to know your work better, um, I encourage them to, you know, read the library <laughs> and listen to the podcast because it, it builds on each other so nicely. And um, uh, it's, it's no wonder that you, have, you work with the kind of companies that you do. Um, But I thought, where do we start? Um, You've literally written the book on the phrase that is now giving us all comfort. (laughs) We are all in this together, right? And you did it from the standpoint of building teams in corporate environments. But I think as I've heard you speak about it over the last week in Mm. such different terms, and all of the things that you bring us about, appreciation, authenticity, compassion, kindness, connectedness, they really are the theme of your work for years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, I wrote, Darren, I wrote this book last summer. um, And you know, the thrust of it, as you mentioned, I mean, the subtitle of it is, you know, creating a team culture of high performance, trust and belonging. It's kind of a culmination of the work I've been doing for the last 20 years, in the sense of I wrote, uh, bring your whole self to work, which you referenced when you introduced me. And the final principle of the five in there was, you know, create a championship team. And I kind of wanted to double click on that and go deeper into, you know, how can a team really adopt a lot of these principles as a team, as an organization to create that kind of culture. Secondarily, though, and you know this from listening to my podcast and hearing me over the last couple of years, with all of the division and divisiveness in our country and in our world right now, I really wanted to write a book, I wanted the title. I had to fight for the title, by the way, with my publisher and my agent. And everybody's like, no, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Because to me, that's always been sort of a rallying cry of great teams. And it's also, for me, a statement that I want to make to our country and our world that I really believe this without sounding overly cornier or or naive about it that like i've always struggled with the idea of like who's the them and who's the us like isn't it all us well
1: yeah do you think some of that comes from your team sports background that you you've you've got that perspective of and you write about the difference between job and
2: role right right that our that our role is what we do and our job is to help the team win and so yeah i did i think i learned that as an athlete Um, In a lot of ways, because and at the same time, a lot of team sports and I played baseball all growing up and I also played some basketball, although I wasn't nearly as good at basketball. But, um, you know, even though it's a team sport and you win as a team and lose as a team, there is a ton of internal dynamic um, ego stuff, sort of politics, if you will, on sports teams, even even as a kid. And especially by the time I got to college, I played at Stanford and then played professionally in the minor leagues with the Kansas City Yeah, Royals. I've heard
1: you speak about and write about, and I've read you, that how competitive that showing up at that first day of camp where there's like oh. 70 pitchers.
2: Oh my God, yeah, uh, first spring training at, with the Royals, right? Seventy-five at your level. 75, at your level. 75, 75 minor league pitchers in camp and then another 25 across the street in major league camp and basically, you know, about 30 of us are going to get cut in about three weeks, four weeks. So that's pretty internally competitive. But, you know, circling back to your your question about the phrase of the moment, I mean, I didn't write this book thinking, oh, it's going to come out in the midst of a global pandemic, right? <laughs> like right. that wasn't on the agenda.
1: That, no. Right? And,
2: and that's not even something that I think, look, there's obviously a lot of epidemiologists and public health professionals and people who study this stuff who've been thinking about and researching and planning for this, but the vast majority of us, this is not something that was on my radar as a possibility no. um, of something that could actually happen. And if it did what the ultimate impact would be, but Certainly I,
1: not when you sent it off to the printer, for goodness sake, like no, August. I don't remember no. you talking about the podcast or whenever you did. Right. Send it off,
2: you Yeah, know. we sent it off in August. And then by the time the editing was done, it was November. But I think that what's interesting is it has taken on a whole new meaning in the sense that, you know, one of the things that's hard for us to do in our families, on our teams, in any community, whether it's a nonprofit organization, or a Fortune 500 company, or it's a school or a church or any community, is how we get past the individual egos and agendas and, um, you know, roles and all, not that, not that those things are bad. They're not. It's just, how do we create something that is bigger and larger and that unifies us? And what can often do it is a goal or a a dream or some desire we have. We want to win the championship. We want to, you know, something bigger than that. We want to, you know, end hunger and poverty in our community, right? That that rallies us, that that's the why. Sometimes though, it can be a tragedy. Mm -hmm. It can be a crisis because in the midst of a crisis, what happens is like right now, again, we're all dealing with this differently. It's impacting us differently. You're in Tennessee. I'm in California. People who work for nonprofits in your community have different sets of challenges than people who work for tech companies in Silicon Valley than work for, you know, retail companies that are now their establishments are indefinitely closed and, you know, all of that. So the circumstances are different, but there's a unity in the sense that we're all dealing with, this larger crisis that we can't control and is impacting every aspect of our lives right now. And we've never, I mean, Darren, you and I lived through nine 11 as did other Americans. We've been, we've all been through personal crises and tragedies. We've never been through something like this globally.
1: Nope. Nope. Um, You know, and you, you're, you're, you've hit on something and I opened the book um, to, a mutual acquaintance and somebody you've worked with and I worked with for a year or so at Cap Inc., Dan Pinkle, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you talk about unity. Mm-hmm. When you talk about unity, um, there is an aspect of being able to be divided together, you say, and united apart. Right. And Dan gave you that, right?
2: Yeah. So, Dan, you know. So, Dan and I met. Um, he was the co-CHR, or the co-chief human resource officer, along with Eric Severson, who I know you know, and I've had on my podcast and so have you, Eric, who I quote in the book as well. They both, they no longer, neither of them work at Gap Inc. anymore, right? but they ran HR for the whole Gap Inc. And Dan had been at, at Gap for like 25 years. And one of the roles he had at one point was he was the head of HR for Old Navy, which is one of the Gap brands. And their president um, left suddenly, took another job. And they weren't prepared for it. They didn't have someone to step into the role. So what they decided to do was Dan and three of the other leaders on the leadership team, um, you know, probably the, the head of finance or the head of legal and whoever, anyway, anyway, four of them total were said, you guys run the brand on an interim basis as a foursome, and then we're going to go do a search and find a new president. And it ended up lasting, I think Dan told me for like six months. But what, you know, and Dan had been a leader, a pretty senior leader for a long time, but this was a unique kind of odd situation of four people basically fill the role of interim president. It wasn't one person, and they knew it was going to be challenging for everybody because everyone was going to wonder who's going to get the job and is it going to be one of the four of you and all this stuff that was going to happen. So the very first meeting they had, they decided amongst the four of them, we need to be divided together and united apart, meaning we got to be able to fight and argue and disagree and debate and talk about all the issues in the room when we get together and do it honestly and do it respectfully and do it directly. But when we leave the room, we got to be 100% aligned because if we show any daylight between us, people are going to exploit that and it's going to get crazy and we can't throw each other under the bus. And he said, you know, it was one of the most challenging and most exciting experiences of his professional career, but they were able to make it through that six months. And the four of them really created that authentic sense of unity. And I love that. And I often will share this with teams. I work with this notion of being divided together and united apart, meaning like, can we really get in the room with each other? And again, sometimes this is with our family. Sometimes this is with the the leadership team Sometimes, but just that like, we really have those conversations And we respect each other enough and we hold in confidence enough what gets said and how it goes. And when we leave, we make a commitment to each other. You can count on me. I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I'm not going to talk out of turn. And even if we're still in the middle of or debating a decision that we're going to make, I'm going to, we're going to communicate that in the most respectful and most aligned way possible. And this is a simple concept, Aaron, but this is not easy to practice.
1: I've, I've said that so much about what we're going through right now. There are concepts and tools that we have that do seem simple, but they're not easy, yeah. right? They are, there's work to be done personally and professionally right now that, that is methodically and intellectually very doable. Yes. Emotionally much more difficult. So that brings us to a conversation around uh, someone that I know we both admire, very much who was on 60 minutes last night, Mm -hmm. Renee Brown. Right. Um, And I know that in your equation for authenticity, vulnerability is a key. I'm not, I'm not good at my algebra right now, but a key
2: factor. (laughs) It's Um, a part of it. It's a part of the equation.
1: Yes. (laughs) And and I don't know where the parentheses or the multiplication.
2: You and me both, man, you and me both. But
1: but, um, you, you say that it's um, honesty minus self-righteousness yes. plus vulnerability yeah. and what that's I, authenticity Yeah, that's authenticity and that's how you I, it's, it's, it's like clicked for me mm-hmm. and the, the blending of that I have been more in my work um, more of a curator of content and collector and seeing who parallels each other mm-hmm. and naturally you and Brene Brown really say many of the same things very differently to different audiences, she with that academic perspective and you with your 20 years of research, not Mm -hmm. in the academic environment, but um, I like to synthesize that type of information. Well, that your formula there clicked significantly Mm -hmm. for me. And I think in this time, where we need to show up for each other authentically with whatever is really happening in our individual lives, individual communities, um, when we're working remotely, do different than we might have before. Those of us who are self-employed have done this. I did this for ALSAC and St. Jude, but yeah. now we have to show up differently. And the one that I have, I have named <laughs> um, the self-righteous component, uh, Judgey McJudge. Judgey and McJudge. <laughs> I, yeah, and you know, I have. I will tell you, I've got an eighty-four-year-old mom, mm. and I've been pretty Judgey McJudge with my self-righteousness about why people don't stay at home right okay yeah. it's hard not to but to show up in the all together when we are really all in this together yeah way, we have to get to that
2: well look and one of the things so self-righteousness is there's a the thing is there's a difference between self-righteousness and conviction Self-righteousness is I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad, I'm superior, you're inferior. Now we never say it quite like that. But look, I, I similarly right now I've been I was watching seeing posts over the weekend of pictures people were taking of like all these people walking around in Chicago or people out and even friends of mine, there's pictures of them with other people and my reaction is like, what the heck are you doing? Are you not listening to the experts like this is dangerous you're putting people's lives. So again, we can get angry, we can speak up, we can have very strong opinions. The difference is, I think of this great quote from Dr. King, and I use this quote a lot, I used to use it even more than I do, is he said, we have no morally persuasive power with those who can feel our underlying contempt for them. So if what we're trying to do, I got into a little thing, and I don't normally do this on Facebook, someone just, you know, commented on something about, and they were coming at me like, why aren't you a vegan And I was like, because I'm not, you know, and it was, and I went, and a little bit of like, and at some point I actually finally just, we started to debate a little bit. And I said at some point in the conversation, look, I respect and appreciate and admire veganism as a choice. I understand why people choose to be vegan for the planet, for their well being, for animals, for all of that. I totally get it. And I haven't made that choice. And you could judge me as being selfish or, you know, I just like to eat certain things or I'm not willing to, you know, whatever. But the point is, as she was saying it to me, my response back was like, I hear where you're coming from. And, you know, it's not going to help your cause with me or anyone if you judge me and make me wrong. And and that's the tricky part. And so, again, when we get into these issues of life and death, when it's like, hey, I've got an 84-year-old mother. You walking around and thinking like, oh, this doesn't relate to me. You're putting her life at risk. That's like a time in life when we could stand up and say, hey, no, thank you. I don't appreciate that. I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong. However, there's, this is tricky, emotional terrain, there's a way to communicate that to people both in person and even in writing that doesn't come from a self-righteous place. It's hard, but it's possible. We remove the self-righteousness, which means, it doesn't mean we remove the passion or the opinion or or what we think or that we're going to say it, but we remove the like, I'm right thing because the natural response to righteousness is defensiveness. So even if even if I'm out in the world moving around and I shouldn't be and you come and call me out on it, if you come at me with self-righteousness, I'm going to defend myself and say, "Well, you're overreacting. Well, here's why I'm doing it." Or, "You don't know what I'm talking about." As opposed to if you come to me and let me know, "I'm deeply, deeply concerned, upset, angry, sad, confused about seeing you out," right? That's a different communication because you're letting me know the impact of what I'm doing and I go, "Wow." Well,
1: and that that's the addition of vulnerability, right? right. And in the book, you tell the great story of being on an airplane. and I know that <laughs> I'm going to let readers, I want listeners and readers to read the book, so I'm not going to um, um, spoiler that story. But, right. you know, it, we can all, I love what Brene Brown says about being on an airplane when she wants not to talk to someone. She, <laughs> I do shame research. I just love that line. Yes, her, voice, exactly. her delivery is priceless. Yes. So, um, you know, I think that's the key. It's those, the, And the way you present this book and your others by may, giving us, you know, two or three or four principles or pillars in the Mm -hmm. case of this book. Um, One that I want to talk about too, because I live in Memphis, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. you know, and you mentioned Dr. King earlier. Um, Actually I live in Jackson, Tennessee outside Memphis, but I was born and raised in Memphis and you know, Dr. King was assassinated there and that's, that's a, a tough, um, white fragility thing to bear sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but, this book, you've really straightforwardly addressed diversity, equity, and inclusion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, it's great for teams in the corporate environment, it's great for humans, yeah. <laughs> it's great for people. So can you give our listeners a little bit of a insight into the evolution of that content and why that was important for you?
2: Yeah, I appreciate you asking. And, um, you know, I grew up, I write about this. In, so the book is, has four pillars, as you're talking about, right? The, the second one is about focusing on inclusion and belonging. And I, um, I really wanted, this was one of the primary impetuses for me to write this book, is I wanted to write this chapter in this book again, I wanted the book to come out in 2020 in this divisive time. And I, so Darren, you know, my story with this or my background, you know, I grew up in Oakland, California. I'm white, I'm straight, I'm male. I, but I I grew up in this unique way in the sense that I was raised by my single mom with an older sister. So my perspective on gender, my mother was a very strong feminist, like you know, women like Gloria Steinem and Billie Jean King and Susan B. Anthony were talked about in my house with reverence. My mom took my sister and I out of school in 1984, down to Oakland City Hall to see Geraldine Ferraro speak as she was running with Walter Mondale as, you know, vice presidential candidate. First time we'd had a female on a major party ticket. Um, so, so that influenced me. I also went to school, public school in Oakland, played sports. And the further along I went in school, by the time I got to high school, Almost every environment I was in at school and in sports, I was a minority, not a minority in the culture, but just like I was the only white kid on the basketball team, the only white kid in the whole league my junior year in high school in Oakland. And so, again, not fully understanding. I mean, I was aware of a lot of racial dynamics, but not fully understanding the the, um, unique nature of that until I went to college. And I went to Stanford where I played baseball and my, my response, and I read about this in the book, my friends would call me and say, what's it like at Stanford? And I'd tell them a few things. But my main thing would be like, I've never been around this many white people in my life. (laughs) Because that was my honest experience, which sounds sort of strange coming from a white person. But it was like, wow, there's a lot of white people. And there's a whole culture of white people that like, I actually don't totally understand. I was learning things culturally about my own whiteness, if you will, even though I had, there were people from Tennessee and people from New York and people from Maine and people from all different parts of the country that I actually growing up with not a lot of money, we hadn't traveled a lot. So I hadn't really interacted with too many people besides where I grew up in the, in the Oakland, you know, San Francisco Bay area. So anyway, I got my degree in American studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity, my senior year in high school, you know, I'm 46 years old. So I graduated high school in 1992 that spring was the rodney king riots in la so these things had huge impact on me and so i was fascinated by a lot of this but the further i got into my adult life even when i was still playing baseball and then especially once i got heard and then came out and was working in the business world and then started doing this work 20 years ago in my mid to late 20s i wanted to start talking about and teaching about and writing about diversity but I thought, gosh, who wants to listen to a young, straight, white guy talk about this stuff? Like, people won't listen to me, or I'll be, I'll offend people. There's a lot of experts in this field that have a lot of more lived experience. So anyway, I had lots of excuses, so I'm not going to go there, right? <laughs> yep. That was my justification. And then over the years, it's become more and more apparent to me. And these things have started to come up more in my work. And I'm comfortable, at least comfortable enough to address them. But it's really been in the last few years as things have gotten the way they've gotten politically and socially in our country and in the world that had me start to realize, and you know, from listening to my podcast, a lot of my podcast episodes over the last couple of years have been, let's talk about this. Let's talk about gender. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about privilege. Let's talk about, you know, whiteness, white fragility, all of these things in the context of how do we create more conducive environments where people can really feel like they belong. And so anyway, that's a long, long answer to your question. But basically for me, I feel both really inspired and committed to this. And quite frankly, Darren, as we're talking here on March 30th, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of everything going on with my book officially probably coming out into the world next week, earlier than we thought, this is the one thing I'm both most excited about and most scared about with this book coming out. Um, Because I've never, I mean, I've written a few things. I wrote one thing right after the election in 2016, I wrote this post called an open letter to my fellow straight white men. And it was basically my, um, reaction to, uh, Donald Trump getting elected and everything that had come up during the campaign and just feeling like, Hey, if you're white and straight and male like me and have some privilege, I think it's really important that we step forward and speak up and say something and do something and speak on behalf of people maybe who are going to have a harder time speaking for themselves. My work is by its nature, not very controversial. Um, I don't get a ton of hate or people come. I got more hate and more name calling and more intense coming at me. Like I woke up and looked at Twitter and was like, what happened? Did something happen? You know, and it both scared me. But then the follow-up post that I wrote in reaction to that was called, we're all in this together. And that was really where the idea for this book started was, wait a minute. We are really in this thing together. And so, and that was before I wrote, bring your whole self to work and it came out. So this idea was kind of germinating, percolating percolating in me. And it's taken me this amount of time to sort of crystallize it and have the courage to put it out there.
1: Well, I'm, I applaud you and it's relevant to my work with nonprofits. It's relevant to coaching clients. It's just relevant to me as a human. And I think it's relevant to all of us in this time where we can look for the things that we're more alike about. And and our collective grief, for example, that we will be experiencing for months, our collective mental health. Right. I, I, you and I could talk for a very long time because um, <laughs> I feel like I have just been a uh, sponge for some of your work. Just knowing that you you have been very transparent about mental health and mm-hmm. mental illness, and then um, the thing that drew me to your work originally, kind of circling back to the podcast appreciation and gratitude. And this book again, takes everything you've said about it and brings it together uh, collectively and differently. And the thing that there's two things that I really wanted to ask you about to make the distinction, because I think it's continues to be important for this. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Paul White, Mm. uh, the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And so he makes a distinction like you do as well, but differently about the difference between recognition and
2: appreciation. Mm -hmm.
1: So can you give a little bit of perspective of that? And then we've got a few more minutes and I have one or two other things.
2: Yeah. I mean, basically the way that I talk about this in the book and in my work over the last number of years is that both recognition and appreciation are super important, but we lump them together, particularly at work and think of them. We use those words sort of interchangeably, but recognition is about performance. So it's a response to performance, to outcome. And it could be informal, like, hey, good job. Way to go, Darren. That was awesome. Way way to go on that project or that meeting. It could be more formal in that you get a reward, an award, a bonus, a a raise, a promotion, you know, whatever. But it's a reaction, right? Again, it's like in the sports world. It's like after I pitched a shutout, right? I got recognized. Way to go, Robbins. Here's the game ball. You did great, right? Um, Appreciation, on the other hand, is about recognizing people's value. So it's more about who we are, less about what we do. And the reason why it's important to separate these two things is because like, it's great to recognize people. Recognition by its nature is scarce. It's only certain people get it. You have to earn it. You want it to be Look, if everybody gets a trophy, the trophy doesn't mean anything, right? But if only a few people get a trophy, then the trophy is valuable. But everyone is deserving of appreciation all the time. And the challenge with appreciation is, and again, we're in this moment right now. My 14 year old Samantha said to me a couple, uh, about a week ago, hey, Dad, you know what's going to be amazing after all this is over? I said, what, honey? She said, we're going to appreciate a whole bunch of stuff we weren't appreciating before.
1: Boom! And I was a 14-year-old like, I, out of the mouth of days. I know
2: who who these days normally rolls her eyes when I try to say anything even remotely <laughs> positive. Oh, Dad, there you go again. But it was just so, <laughs> like, it touched my heart because the thing is, and you know this, like, one of the core stories, my sort of origin story of doing this work comes from, you know, my baseball career when I got hurt. I hurt my arm my baseball career ended. I was really sad and disappointed because I had, it had been the focus of my life. It was like, I'm going to make it to the big leagues. I'm going to be right. And the big realization that I had when it was finally over, as disappointed as I was, was like, oops, I forgot to appreciate it. Like I was really good and that was really fun. And I wasted a lot of time and energy worrying that I wasn't good enough or comparing myself to people or stressing out, trying to get there. And then it was over and it was like, you know, think about all the things right now, Darren, that we're appreciating that we didn't even think were things to appreciate, like going to a concert or going just to the grocery store. Going to the grocery store and being able to just walk freely around without a face mask and gloves on and being scared of touching things and people. And like, I mean, I'm such an extrovert and I love connecting with people. It's so uncomfortable for me when I go out now because, and I'm only going out a few times, but because my instinct is if I see you in the grocery store, even if I don't know you, I'm going to want to make eye contact and move towards you and say hello. And maybe we'll have a conversation. But now it's like, I don't even feel comfortable making eye contact as much as I wanted, like, give someone a wave and like, I'm with you and we're in this experience together. It's just so against my nature that I'm just sort of looking at the floor in kind of a socially awkward way because I'm trying to just move around and I'm simultaneously feeling empathy for people and wanting to stay away from them, which is so weird. And like people keep asking, and I keep seeing these questions online, like, what are you going to do when all this is over? What are you going to appreciate or what do you miss? And so many people, myself included, say giving people hugs. Like, I just want to literally go... Last night in our neighborhood, we got an email that went around that at eight o'clock everyone was going to go out on their balconies or outside and just sort of howl as like I don't know <laughs> I it was not, it. not quite as as inspiring maybe as singing as we saw from Italy but everyone was howling at the moon and we're all kind of waving to our neighbors from afar and I said to Michelle my wife I was like babe I literally want to go and we're not even su- Bobby honest we're not super close with our neighbors but we know them all and they're nice people but. I wanted to run and hug all of them like that was my instinct but I was like but I'm going to stand here on the balcony and just wave and you know give them a thumbs up and howl but it's just like all those things so appreciation again back to people is about recognizing people's value it's also just about recognizing the inherent value in life as opposed to recognizing the 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 good outcome or the the positive thing if that makes sense i
1: posted the other day about i just it it came to a point for me that i had to humanize it more yeah and and it wasn't number of cases it was number of people people and and a a friend of mine that no longer lives in las vegas but used to is one of the people that cnn featured because he lost two sisters um and um this was a week or so ago so you know it starts to hit home for us differently. And and I think appreciation, I am a student of appreciation <clears throat> and gratitude in the mm-hmm. workplace. And the two, those have layers, right? Like appreciation, you can express it differently and gratitude and thank you um, have a whole different, um, a lot wrapped up in them.
2: I, I often and, think of gratitude like as a mindset, right? I mean, there's things we can do, you know, gratitude journal, which I've kept for years, ways to express gratitude and thankfulness. But I also think of, you know, gratitude is really a state of mind. It's looking for things, right? And if we take a grateful mindset and you know this, cause you've been studying it for years. If we take a grateful mindset, whether it's to work or to life or to even what's going on right now, it's not that we're pretending like everything's great and it's all wonderful. No, in fact, it's hard, but really important to take a grateful mindset when we're in the midst of a challenge. So, with
1: mindset, I have to call our listeners' attention to that quickly, and we don't even have time to talk about it, but <laughs> the growth mindset mm-hmm. and Carol Dweck's work yep. that you can learn the mindset of gratitude. Totally. It, it can be developed. It does take practice. Mm-hmm. In a time like now, you know, I've had people reaching out to me personally and online like, how can you be grateful? Musicians, a, a musician friend reached out to me like, Darren, I just can't find it. Right. I'm like, I get it. You, you you can't be grateful that you're out of a job now. Right what can you find? Where can you find the light? What can you lean into that you can learn from? And yeah. that's where we get some joy just briefly, because I usually ask, what What are you grateful for at work? We've talked a lot about that, <laughs> about your family. We've talked a lot about Struggles and what, how you're, how you found gratitude in challenging times, and you have responded to the community, um, and you have a sense of. I wrap it up with a sense of altruism and give back. Yeah. Um, and don't you find, and don't you think we're starting to see that? We talk about flattening the curve of the virus, yeah. but I believe that we're starting to see, and working in the nonprofit sector, we will start to see that altruism. No matter what the economy does, no matter where we are, um, people want to help.
2: They do. We all do. I mean, look—it's a—it's a—it's a natural human instinct. And you know, a question I often ask when I'm speaking to a group of people about this is, you know, how many of you like helping other people? Of course, everybody raises their hand. And then my second question is, and how many of you love asking other people for help? And like, maybe 10% of the hands go up. And usually, the ones that raise their hand, they raise it and then they kind of pull it down. Like, is that bad? So what's interesting about that is because we do want to help. And the reality is, look, and you know this working in the nonprofit world, the economic impact of all of what happens here is going to have a big impact on people's ability to help financially. But the desire to help is an instinct that we have within us, whether it's financial or otherwise. And that's one thing I've actually been checking in with myself. Because when, we get, when I get really freaked out, one of the, one of the many things that flies out the window and I'm not as focused on is how can I serve? How can I help? So one of the things though that I've been grappling with but you know from following my work like all of a sudden I've put out more content in the last few weeks than I ever have in like a two or three week span some of it and I've been I've been transparent about it is like I'm just managing my own anxiety and my own I need to feel like I'm doing something yeah. and so I want to share thoughts and ideas, both because I'm a verbal processor, but if I can share anything that might be helpful to you or anybody, then I feel like I'm being of service. Um, And again, so I think all of us looking at our lives in different ways, how can we be of service even to ourselves and to our families? Like that's not being selfish at all. That's actually being of service in a really important way. Because the truth is I sit here in my office and I'm doing all these interviews and creating all this content and getting ready for a book to come out. And there's a lot of work and trying to pivot the business and all that's important. And then sometimes I have to like put down my microphone and close my laptop and walk literally a hundred feet over that way into my house and check in with Michelle and with Samantha and with Rosie and like, Hey, how are you doing? And really have that real conversation with the people that I love the most in the life, in my life, you know?
1: Well, I knew this would be a great conversation. I thank you for taking the time in this in the midst of the crisis. I think it's important for our listeners, your listeners, to continue to hear from you. And I will say a sincere and heartfelt thank you for giving us more, more of what I think is so necessary. I'm so excited. Uh, thank you for giving me the preview of the book that you did. Oh, you're and
2: welcome.
1: I'm so excited for our listeners to to dive into that, however, and I will tell you, I don't know when the audio book's coming out, Mike, but I I love listening to you on audio. Oh, thank I, you. I, I really. That's one of the ways I learn, and I have a lot of drive time. So, yeah. yeah however, you take in this content, my friends who are listening uh, to Working Gratitude, um, I hope you will do that. Yeah.
2: Um, well, can, can I share just a couple things as we wrap sure. up? And I appreciate you saying all that. One thing about just about the book, in a practical sense, like the book was supposed to come out May fifth. I think, as we're recording this, I think it's going to be out next week on April 7th, the hardcover, the ebook, the audio book should be out sometime in the next week or two. We also did something cool, Darren, just I wanted to tell you about and everybody listening is, if you, and this page, I'll send you a link, Darren, so you can put it in the show notes. If you go to mike-robbins.com forward slash together, that can tell you more about the book and there's info on there. But if you end up ordering the book, what you get is some additional bonus material. Okay. I just recorded actually a six series audio series. That's a companion to the book for people to listen to even before they get it, as well as there's some action guides that we pulled right out of the book for leaders, for team members, and for teams as a whole, as well as I'm going to be doing a webinar later in the month that people will have access to. But the thing that I wanted to say more importantly is I think right now, what I've been thinking about a lot in recent days and weeks is look, we don't know what's happening here. We don't know where this is going. We don't know what the ultimate impact's going to be on people getting sick and people dying. We know it's significant and it's serious. We don't know what the economic impact's going to be. We don't know how it's going to change our lives and how we work and what we do. But suffice to say, it's already changing things. It will change things. There's something that I've been thinking about personally through all this. And a friend of mine named Theo and I had a conversation back in 2011. And it was right at a time when two really significant, very challenging things were happening in my life. One is that my mom had just been diagnosed with lung cancer. This was March of 2011. And the second thing was we had gone through a very difficult financial time during the the recession and it, that resulted in we were now facing and and moving forward with basically doing a short sale on our house, losing our house. And I was feeling incredibly sad and scared about my mom being sick. The reality of her passing away was, I mean, she had stage four lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And... I was feeling incredibly ashamed and embarrassed about the financial situation that we'd gotten ourselves. And even though we were sort of on the upswing and moving in a more positive direction, like needing to walk away from this house, even though all the advice I've been by lawyers and financial people was this is the right thing to do. This is the smart thing to do. It just felt like it was wrong and I'd failed and I was a bad person. Right. And I'm having this conversation on the phone with my friend, Theo, and I'm going through all of this. And he said to me, you know, first of all, he had a lot of empathy and compassion. I understand about your mom and how hard that is and about, you know, the, you know, your financial situation. He reminded me, he said, by the way, Mike, you did not cause, you know, the implosion of the economy like you were right. But then he said this thing that I never forgot, Darren. He said, even though it may not seem like it right now, it's important to remember that you have more than this requires.
1: Mm, Brilliant.
2: And I just, you know, he said, you have more within you. You can handle this. You can get through this. And, you know, my mom passed away three months later and it was really hard and painful. And we did do that short sale a few months after that. And we had still quite a bit of work to dig ourselves out of that hole of debt and financial challenge that we'd gotten into. But as I look back on that experience now, nine years later. And most everyone listening can look at many different times in their life personally where they got up against something and thought, I'm never going to get through this or I don't know how or I've never done this before. I think for all of us individually and collectively, we don't know what's coming. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out. But if we can remember and have some sense of faith and trust that not only I, you, me, everyone individually listening, but collectively, this country, this world has been through so much. We are way stronger than we think we are and we have more than this moment requires, even though it can seem big and overwhelming. So I just wanted to share that as we wrap this up.
1: Well, I think that's a great way for me to say thank you for that insight, that inspiration, that encouragement. Thank you for uh, joining me today. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. Please follow us on all of the platforms where you listen to uh, podcasts. Please subscribe and listen to Mike's podcast. Um, We're all in this together. And um, you'll be hearing more from me about Mike and his work. And I know we can look forward to more from him on social media. So, thank
2: you again, Mike. Thanks, Aaron.
0: Darren Hollingsworth has had a thriving career as a financial advisor, sales professional, senior fundraising professional, and nonprofit executive. Now, via business, success, and philanthropy coaching, Darren is passionate about helping successful executives realize and exceed their personal and professional potential. He helps business and nonprofit leaders find and confirm their passion, their inspiration, and motivation. This is accomplished through collaborative work based on gratitude, experience, encouragement, and accountability. As Darren says, surviving is not enough, thriving is the goal. Additionally, Darren works with businesses, nonprofit organizations, and boards of directors to create new possibilities for transformational customer and donor relationships, organizational strategic visioning and governance, as well as continuity and succession planning. Via collaboration and consulting, Darren engages with clients to empower them to build upon strengths and face challenges with confidence and expertise. To hear more working gratitude and for information about Darren Hollingsworth and Odonata Coaching and Consulting, visit our website odonatacoaching.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Odonata Coaching or search wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Working Gratitude. Working Gratitude, copyright Darren Hollingsworth and Odonata Coaching and Consulting, all rights reserved.